Well, good morning, and uh, welcome to Park Church. Uh, today, we are celebrating Parktoberfest, uh, and I'm, I'm a little excited. Um, I, I ate a smaller breakfast than usual, just for this occasion. I, I also wore a special Parktoberfest shirt. Every single year I have attended a Parktoberfest, I have worn this shirt. Uh, so I'm, I'm very excited this morning, and I hope you are too. Uh, but it's so good to be with you. Um, uh, last week, if you were here, you know that we started a new series uh, called In All the Wrong Places. And, and we talked about how as human beings, we are by nature worshipers. We were created to worship. We were created to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength. Uh, and, and this is part of what it means to be human. We were created to love and be loved, to know and to be known. And, and the problem is when, when we look for the love of God in other places other than God, we turn those things into what the Bible calls idols, false gods. And, and these idols, these, these false gods ultimately end up controlling us and enslaving us. And they wreak havoc in our lives. And so in, in this series, what we're doing now in the coming weeks is we're, we're taking each week and we're looking at idols. Good things in our lives that we make ultimate things. And so to begin this week, uh, I want to I ask a question. And you don't have to answer out loud. But here's the question. What are you most afraid of? What scares you more than anything else? This was the question in a massive survey that was done among Americans uh, several years ago by the National Institute of Mental Health. And they compiled a list of the top five things that we fear most. And so what I'd like to do this morning is to begin just by reading this list to you. Uh, the first, or I should say number five, is heights. Anyone here scared of heights this morning? Okay, we got a couple. That makes sense. I mean, when you fall, it hurts, right? I get that. Uh, number four, darkness. Anyone scared of darkness? Okay, we got some people afraid of the dark. Uh, number three, spiders. All right, do we have anyone who suffers from arachnophobia? in here. Got a couple. Anyone seen the movie Arachnophobia? Do you remember that? I was not scared of spiders and then I saw that movie and it gave me arachnophobia. <laughs> it's, a, it's a terrifying movie. Uh, but now, now to the good stuff though. Number two. Any guesses as to what number two is? Good guesses? Death. Death. And then when, I, when I first saw that, I thought, wait a second, shouldn't that be number one? <laughs> right? Don't all fears in some way derive from our base fear of death? But, but apparently, that's, that's number two. Uh, any guesses as to what number one is? Public speaking. Apparently, I missed, I missed the boat on this one. Uh, public speaking, nearly three-quarters, 74% of 
of the people who were asked said that what they fear more than anything else is public speaking. Isn't that odd? I mean, think about it. Every day, you and I have conversations with people. You and I talk. We express our ideas with words, and seemingly, at least for most of us, we do this without deep anxiety or fear. Of course, there are exceptions to this, but in, in 40 minutes, you and I may be having a conversation about the amazing chili that we're eating, and, and seemingly, we're not going to be scared while we're talking to each other. What's, what's different What's different between you and I having a conversation and me standing up here right now and addressing a crowd? Yeah, the, yeah, the, the difference, the difference is that there's something involved when it comes to a crowd. And that is evaluation. See, when you're before a crowd, there is... There is corporate judgment happening. There is a corporate evaluation. Every word that you speak when you speak to a large group is in some way held up according to some sort of criteria. You're being evaluated, and that evaluation is magnified, it's amplified, the bigger the crowd. And so, all of a sudden, we're being evaluated, judged. And the reason why that terrifies most Americans more than death, is because we all, every single one of us, to one degree or another, we all desire the approval of others. And to the point that we, we cringe, we're allergic to disapproval, to criticism, to anything that feels like condemnation or judgment. We long to be approved, to be affirmed by one another. And frankly, this is, this is actually a good thing, right? It's, it's actually a good thing to want the approval of others. I mean, imagine living in a world where no one cared at all about what anyone else thinks. Or even worse, imagine living in a world where, where people wanted the disapproval of others, Right? It would be a terrifying place to live. And so there's a social function that the approval of others serves in our society, in the way that we relate to one another. But, but what happens when we take a good thing, like the approval of others, and we make it an ultimate thing in our lives? What happens when we take this good thing and we make it a God thing? What happens when we let the approval of others sit on the throne of our hearts and we begin to, to love, trust, and obey the approval and affirmation of others much more than we should? Well, as we're about to see, when, when we make the idol of, of approval space in our hearts, it has destructive consequences. Our text for this morning comes from the, the New Testament book of Galatians. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Galatians chapter 2, 11 through 14. The text will be on the screen. If you have a Bible, please feel free to open up. If you don't have one, we'd love to give one to you. Or if you have a phone, uh, you, you can look it up on your, your app right now. 
Uh, this is Galatians 2, verses 11 through 14. This is God's word for God's people. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of all of them, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? God's word for God's world. Will you pray with me? Father, uh, as, we, as we pause now, we are reminded that you are good, that through your spirit you are present, and that you long, you desire to sit on the throne of our hearts. And so I ask this morning that uh, whatever might be competing for the allegiance of our hearts this morning, that, that you would win, that you would have your way with us, that you would not let us leave unchanged. Uh, we love you too, Father, and we pray in your Son's name and by your Spirit. Amen. Now, it, it might be helpful to first give a little bit of context for the text that I just read. You see, this, the, the New Testament book of Galatians was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians in a region known as Galatia. And, and Paul was one of the first great, what we would call today, church planters. He went around the Mediterranean world planting churches. And, and while he was planting these churches, though, he had a home base. He had a home church, and that church was in Antioch. And the ancient church in Antioch was a beautiful church. It, it was what we today would call a, a mixed race or a multiracial or a multi-ethnic church. And, and the main way this was seen was in the way that Jews and Gentiles came together. Uh, because historically, especially at this time, Jews and Gentiles did not mixed. You had Jews, and then you had Gentiles, who were basically non-Jews. Anyone who wasn't a Jew is a Gentile. And because of Jewish customs, Jews were not allowed to share meals with Gentiles. And, and yet, because of the power of the gospel, here was a church where the dividing walls in the society were being broken down. And you had Jews and Gentiles sharing meals together. It was this beautiful, multicultural, multi-ethnic church. And so Paul was then going around the Mediterranean, planting these, these beautiful churches like this, right? And then going home to his church in Antioch to fuel up, to get more resources. And then he'd go out and do it again. And, and then Peter came. Now, in this 
text, Peter is referred to as Cephas. That was his original name. Jesus then named him Peter. But Peter shows up and, and he joins in on the party. And everything is well. But then shortly after Peter comes, we're told, says Paul, that some prominent Jews from James, who was the leader of the, the mother church in Jerusalem, showed up. And when these Jews came, they separated themselves from the Gentiles. You see, because they, they believed that Gentiles, in some way, even though they all believed in Jesus, the Gentiles were like second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And if they really, if they truly wanted to be a part of God's family, they had to become Jewish first. Faith in Jesus wasn't enough. They, they had to follow the Jewish customs, which involved things like circumcision, food laws, right? Not a lot of adult uh, Gentiles jumping up and running to get in line to get circumcised, understandably, right? And, and yet, this was the conviction of these, of these Jewish men. And so they separated themselves, right? And then we're told that Peter followed suit. And then all of the Jews joined. And so here's Paul traveling about the Mediterranean world, planting these beautiful multicultural churches. And he comes home to find what? A church divided. This was not the church that he had left. Now, on the surface, the problem in this church is clear, right? We might use the word today like racism to describe what was going on here. There was a group of people who were systematically excluded from the community. And, and Paul sees this, is abhorred by it, and nips it in the bud immediately because there is no place, there is no place for racism in the church, in the community of Jesus followers. There is no place for any sort of ethnic superiority complex in the church. And so Paul comes home and he calls Peter to the carpet and he says, this is wrong. See, the gospel creates one family. There is no two-tiered system in the kingdom of God. And as we read this text, what we see as well is that there's something else going on here. There's, there's something fueling this, this racism. There's a sin beneath the sin. And that's idolatry. In verse 12, Paul says this. He says, Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. Why? Because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. See, Peter was afraid of the opinion of these men who had come. He let his desire for their approval, his fear of rejection from these men, blind his heart to the reality of the gospel. 
He turned a good thing into an ultimate thing. He cared more about what these men wanted than what God wanted. And in doing so, he gave the allegiance of his heart to the idol of the approval of others. Now, we, we can't see idols because idols are made and live in our hearts. And, and yet what we can see, like in Peter's case, is the unhealthy or destructive behavior that come as a result of idols. And, and I know this well because uh, I, I myself am a recovering approval junkie. I, from a young age, I, I began to become increasingly aware that I historically have cared too much about what people think of me. And, and, and this tendency, this idol, manifests itself differently. One of the big ways it did that for me throughout much of my life was through this, this tendency of mine to avoid conflict at all cost. Now, no one, I should say very few people, enjoy conflict, right? But the extent to which I organized all of my social interactions around avoiding conflict was was extremely unhealthy. I, I remember I, in high school, my senior year once, I, uh, I was playing in the, the state tennis tournament in Washington State. It was not the championship match, it was probably the consolation round. But I was playing in this match, and it was the last match for me. And the guy I was playing was, um, how do I put this kindly, he was a bit of a hothead, uh, and just frankly a jerk. Every single line call I made, he questioned, either by throwing his racket or by offering me some four-letter expletive. Like, this guy was very unpleasant to play, and, and it began to wear on me, right? And, and we, we were pretty evenly matched, too, and it was otherwise a very good match, but about the third set, very end of the match, I, I had just had enough. I could not handle the conflict anymore. And I remember him hitting a forehand that was at least two feet out. I mean, it was clearly out. And I said nothing. And the match was over. And, and my coach is like five feet behind me. He's like, Michael, call it out. It was out. It, call it out. And I walked to the net. And I shook my opponent's hand. Because, you see, I, I at all costs, wanted to avoid conflict. I, I could not handle, because of my immaturity, because the, the approval and affirmation of others had come to mean so much to me, I could not handle the conflict. Now, I, I don't know what it may look like for you, the idol of approval showing itself in your life. Because it looks different to people in a lot of different ways. Maybe for you, the idolatry of approval looks like being a people pleaser. And so you say yes to everything over and over and over again, even when deep down you know, I should probably say no to this. Maybe for you, what it looks like is you're, you're never honest or vulnerable with anyone. Because to be honest with someone, even someone close to you, to be vulnerable, to confess, to 
open your heart and to share things that you've never shared with anyone else, that's just too risky. It's too risky. What if, what if I'm in some way rejected? What if there's a response that feels like condemnation, feels like criticism? And so maybe you settle for surface relationships. Maybe what it looks like for you is telling little white lies or exaggerating when you tell stories about yourself to the point that, to the point that in the stories that you tell, you, you always look impressive to others. I, I have a good friend for whom he's notorious for doing this, and sometimes he'll tell stories, and I'll be like, dude, I was there too. <laughs> that is not what happened, right? And then it got to a point where he began to realize this tendency, and and he asked me and another friend to keep him accountable. So that any time he, he would start going off on one of his stories, he'd be like, dude, you're doing it again. Because he began to be aware that what meant the most to him was what other people thought. Even at the expense of just being honest. And so whatever form it takes, this idol of approval, what's true in every instance, is that like all idols, it's rooted in a lie. It's rooted in a lie. And the lie at the base of the idol of approval is this. My self-worth depends on the love and acceptance of others. If in the core of your being you believe that your identity, your sense of worth and dignity and value is determined by, flows from the love and acceptance of others, then, then you will do anything to get it. And you will be disappointed time and time and time again. But the antidote, the antidote to the disease of approval addiction is to replace this lie with the truth. Did you notice what Paul says when, when he notices Peter's idolatry? He says this, he said, I saw that they, that is these Jews who had separated themselves, he said, I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. In other words, the gospel, that is the saving story of Jesus, that is the incredible announcement that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God's kingdom has come, that he has shown up to push back the forces of darkness in this world and to offer grace and forgiveness to anyone who would turn to him, to anyone who would turn and come home so that he could embrace them, so that he can offer the life that he's always intended, this good news of the gospel is the criterion by which we tell ourselves what's true and by which we discern the lies that we find ourselves believing. Because here's the deal, according to the gospel, your self-worth is not dependent upon the love and acceptance of others. Not one bit. According to the gospel, your self-worth is dependent upon the love and acceptance of God. That's it. 
Your self-worth is dependent upon the love and acceptance of God, which raises this question. What does God think of you? Think about that for a minute. When, when you pop up in God's mind, what does he think? Uh, I was in a conversation with a, a good friend of mine not too long ago who uh, was really struggling in his faith. And so I, I invited him to do a short exercise, and I want to, with your permission, do this with you right now. Um, if you would mind just closing your eyes for a moment and imagine that there's nothing around you. It's just you. Just clear your head. And then all of a sudden, there's God on his throne. In all of his glory, in all of his splendor, in all of his beauty, it's just you and God. And he's so bright, you can't even look. But let's just imagine that just for a moment, just a, a split second, you caught a glimpse of his face. And he happened to be looking right at you. How is he looking at you? What is, what kind of look is on his face? How does he see you? Okay, you can open your eyes. This is what I did with my friend. And, and when I asked him that question, immediately he knew. He said, when I, when I imagine God looking at me, this is what I see. I see him folding his arms like this, looking down, giving a sigh, and shaking his head. Because my friend, at the depths of his being, believed that God was perennially disappointed in him. That was his basic theology, that God was just always upset with him. But friends, what I told my friend and what, what I want to ask you this morning is if the gospel is true, if God was willing to go to the greatest lengths, if he was willing to give everything that he had for you so that you might know him, so that you might serve him and not the many other gods that this world has to offer, if God was willing in and through Jesus to lay down his life for you, how do you think he sees you? How do you think he looks at you? I want to end this morning by reading a passage of scripture from the book of Romans. This is Romans 8, verses 38 through 39. I want to invite you to just let these words just fill your heart. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Will you pray with me? 
Father, uh, we, we pause now so grateful for the fact that our self-worth, our very identity, is not determined by what other people think, is not determined by other people's opinions, whether that person be our boss, our spouse, family, friends, neighbors. But Father, our identity, our worth, comes from you, from your love, from your approval. And Father, we thank you for the reminder that in Christ, you have shown that you love us. That doesn't mean you approve of everything we say, think, and do. Far from it. But Father, you love us like a, ch- like a parent loves his or her child. Please remind us of this. Please draw us near to yourself this morning. Please help us to dethrone whatever idols might be reigning in our lives, enslaving us, so that you can have your rightful place. Father, we love you because you first loved us, and we pray in the name of your son, Jesus, who gave everything for us on the cross so that we might be reconciled to you. And we pray by the power of your spirit who is here this morning, stirring the affections of our hearts for you. Amen.